But most importantly, my childhood taught me that anything's possible if I'm willing to put the preparation work in and seize the opportunity. Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast with Steve Schallenberger. I'm your host, Jamie, and you're listening to the show that is guaranteed to help you transform your life and achieve results that otherwise would have seemed difficult or even impossible. Each episode is a mini training where you'll learn how to achieve extraordinary success. Steve is a number one national best-selling author. He successfully started 11 businesses in three separate industries. He is a highly sought-after keynote speaker and corporate trainer for large and small organizations around the world, executive coach, father of six, and founder of Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, Mr. Steve Schallenberger. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you might be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a tremendously interesting guest today. Our guest is a successful business leader and has influenced many, many people for good. Welcome to our show today, Tim Sanders. Hey, great to be with you, Steve. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. Well, good. All right. Now, before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little about Tim's background. He spent his early career on the cutting edge of innovation and change. He was an early stage member of Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com, which had the largest opening day IPO in history. Uh, After Yahoo acquired the company, Tim was tapped to lead their value lab, and, and by 2001, he rose to chief solutions officer. And today, he's one of the top rated speakers on the lecture circuit. Uh, Tim is also the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App, which is an awesome book, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. I really enjoyed uh, reading that. Uh, Tim's book has been featured in Fast Company, USA Today, the New York Times, Boston Globe, and, and so on. He is a master storyteller who offers his listeners actionable takeaways that produce results right away. So I have been looking forward to having uh, Tim here in our interview today. And to get going, uh, Tim, can you tell our listeners maybe a little about your background, your story, what was it like growing up, maybe some experiences that helped you see that you could be successful? Oh, thank you. Um, I grew up in Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, it's a farming community just east of the West Texas border. Uh, I'm sorry, just west of the te- West Texas border. And um, I was raised by my grandmother. I um, was a special education student uh, from second to fifth grade, um, which really, you know, taught me a lot of things. Steve, it taught me how to bounce back. That's for sure. It taught me how to fit in when people didn't understand who I was. But most importantly. My childhood taught me that anything's possible if I'm willing to put the preparation work in and seize the opportunity. Um, In my adult life, I had a period of time, say 15 years or so, where I was gainfully employed and successful to some degree, but just not laser focused on what mattered. You might say I was in a mediocrity trap. In 1997, I went to work for Mark Cuban about a year after I had gotten out of that trap and had a real 
paradigm shift about what it was going to take for me to be successful for my family. When I worked for Mark Cuban, you can imagine 1997, the dawn of the internet explosion. It was such a breathtaking opportunity, Steve. Um, but I remember those times mostly um, as being a student of the game, something I learned from him. And I was a voracious book reader. I was a mentor to anybody I did business with. And by 2001, after he'd sold the company to Yahoo, I became Yahoo's chief solutions officer right after the dot-com crash of 2000. So my team and I went out to rebuild hundreds of millions of dollars of lost business because all those companies like eToys, our big advertisers, had gone kaput. And through those experiences, I built up a perspective that if we commit ourselves to lifelong learning and we lead with love in our hearts for other people and expect nothing in return other than that they improve and pay it forward, you can accomplish anything in this world we live in. Wow, what a rich background. And then to be able to take that background and uh, like Clovis, New Mexico, you mean you can be successful if you were born in Clovis, New Mexico? I'll tell you something. Let me let me tell you something about Clovis, New Mexico, a little town, 30,000 people. Um, I was on the debate team in high school, Steve, and we wanted to be nationally ranked. Now, it was a real kind of a pork chop circuit, right? There was a, a Las Cruces tournament, the El Paso tournament, the Odessa tournament. We had to get in our cars and drive over two hours to Lubbock, Texas, to go to a decent library to research for our debate. And we had to compete with, you know, Houston, Bel Air, and Dallas, St. Mark's, and all these great folks in New Mexico, all the big schools from Albuquerque and Santa Fe. But I'll tell you something, my senior year, we won state championship, um, and we went to the national tournament. And we didn't have nearly the resources of anybody we competed with. But man, I got to tell you, and I thank my coach for this, we had heart. Wow. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I can attest uh, uh, that uh, people from the salt of the earth uh, communities like this can have a big difference in the world. Yeah, and I think, I think too, Steve, is that there, there's something in our values raised in that environment um, that make us really good connectors. And I also think it, it, it makes us hungrier to find some way to get back that edge and to look for those invisible resources that are out there, like knowledge, um, that can really give us a leg up. And it makes us want to give back, too, when we become successful. You know, there's a natural, very deep-set generosity. And I got to tell you, I come from it very honestly. I mean, the patriarch of our family is uh, my great-grandfather, uh, the late, great Tommy King. And he was one of the founders of Clovis when it organized into a city uh, back around the, right the Great Depression. And he was a successful farmer. And one of the things he did uh, before the Dust Bowl era, right before it, was he engaged with some agricultural technologists and became the first farmer in that part of the country to use circular farming techniques, which when the Dust Bowl hit, um, helped his farms survive, if not thrive, while others withered away. And in our family, one of the most poignant stories about Tommy was how much he gave back to other farmers who were in crisis, the ones that bullheadedly wouldn't try circular farming, knowing that the science said there was something coming in a drought. He was happy to give them micro loans. He never collected on them. He would just tell people, when this happens in the future, you pay it forward. And I believe that his philosophy really represented, you know, small town America. Oh, that's a great story. And then to actually go from being a special ed student to 
being successful, uh, that's got to give hope to special ed students anywhere because, you know, it's, they're behind a gun. And so is there hope? I mean, like, can we make it? It's, it's tough. I mean, you know, more background here. So my grandmother raised me because my, my, my mother abandoned me um, when, when I was in four. And it manifested into tremendous uh, depression when I was a little kid, and it, it, it exhibited itself in discipline issues. And it, during those days, Steve, they really didn't have much to do with a kid, you know, when you're seven. So, so all they really can do is put you in special education. Um, and that experience was really challenging because it's it's not just that you're taken out of school, it's that you're ostracized. And when you go to church, you're treated differently because, you know, you go to the other school. And, and I picked up the nickname Short Bus. And I really didn't shake that nickname till junior high. But I think the thing that I got out of the whole situation is when they put me back into the general population in the sixth grade, I had to deal with bullies for the first time. You know, when you're different, you're going to deal with bullies. For parents, this is a great challenge when a child is singled out into a program like special ed or frankly, like gifted for that matter. And and I'll tell you, I, I think my point of view about how I dealt with that tr traumatic sixth and seventh grade year what had to do with how I felt about love. Uh, I'll give you a classic story. So in the seventh grade, the day that you wear your nice clothes and your nice white shirt for the picture, you know, for the yearbook, yep. um, I went in and uh, th this bully um, who went to church with us uh, demanded my lunch money and, and uh, hesitated. So he punched me right in the nose and I bled all over my shirt. Not, not, gory, but I bled on my shirt. It, it ruined me for the picture that day. When, when Billy, my grandmother, came to pick me up, I thought she was going to just, you know, ha have it out with that, <laughs> that boy's mom or at least give him a good talking to. So when Billy and I are sitting in the vice principal's office and, and we're alone for a second, she turns to me and she looks at me and she says, you know, the problem here is that you don't love those boys enough. I remember looking at her and I point at my shirt and I said, what do you mean? He's mean. He's a mean boy. And she said, in our family, you don't love people because of who they are. You love people because of who we are. And she goes, that's going to go a long ways with you fitting in at the school. And so she said, I should invite him over after church because she believed that people were inherently good, and when they were mean or when they were bad, there was something about the story that you don't know. And so, you know, he came over after church and uh, stole some of my stuff and still kind of picked on me, but he didn't punch me in the nose. And then I guess he felt the duty to invite me over to his house a few weeks later on the other side of the tracks where he lived. And when I visited his home that Sunday afternoon, um, I realized why he was a bully. His father, a drunk, swore at him coming in through the front door. His older brother whipped him with what, like a horse bridle in front of me hmm. later. And I realized that this guy had been going through a lot more than I was and that he was manifesting it. He was a big guy. He was manifesting it, picking on the only thing that, you know, he could get away with picking on. That's a little guy called Short Bus. And once I had that breakthrough, Steve, it really changed the way I thought about people. I, I truly began to understand that if we give someone our love and we care about them, whether it's on a personal level like this or on a professional level, like say someone that I manage, you'd be surprised how many of their problems go away and how you can convert a bully uh, into a blocker. 
And I got to say, that guy and I became good friends. And a little bit more than four years later, uh, he put up posters for me when I successfully ran for senior class president and won. And I realized that for the rest of my life, I'm going to go out into the market and love people because of who I am. And it's very easy to find things about them that are incredibly easy to love. And that I'm assuming when people don't give back, when they don't do the right thing, when they're mean spirited, I'm assuming that there's something about the story, a struggle that I have no knowledge of. Um, and it's made me a much deeper listener and a much more curious person in a good way. Well, that's a fantastic uh, experience, and thank you for sharing it. Uh, how grateful are we for the people in our backgrounds that help us grow and develop and overcome maybe some of the um, deficiencies that we might have that we may or even may not be aware of that help us start becoming what we're capable of becoming. So that's really an inspirational story. And then uh, love is so powerful, and we may talk about it more during our interview, but after, uh, well, I was going through my college career, I sold books mm -hmm. back, back east, and, and one of the great books that I read was The Greatest Salesman in the World oh, yeah. about the scrolls, and I will greet this day with love in my heart, and how will I greet those that treat me poorly with love, and oh my goodness. You just feel this tremendous power that comes from it. So I'm so glad you shared that. Well, thank you. And 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 I will tell you, there there's real science, or at least there's real psychological research behind this. I and mean, if you think about it, this is a manifestation of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Abraham Maslow studied something he called be love. That is being love. That is a, a, a detached form of caring about another person. Like I care about another person whether or not you care about me. I care about that person solely because I want to help that person grow. I don't care about that person because I need a new friend. D-love, Maslow wrote about this, a deficiency-based love, says I need to be loved. So everything I do from being friendly to making you know advances, whatever you do to try to go out and help people, you're doing it to solve one of your problems. So yeah, Maslow talked about the idea that when we feel fulfilled in terms of how much we think we're cared about and that the way we think about love and other people, again, whether it's personal or professional, when we do that, we are making the leap to becoming like self-actualized, if you will, mm -hmm. and that it's the most powerful way to think about loving other people because there's no anxiety in those relationships because you're not expecting anything in return. And that's what makes them so beautiful. And I found in my business life that as a leader, as a manager, as a, as, as a colleague, this works even more because, you know, we need people to encourage us at work. We need people to care about us as customers. And uh, I believe too many people are just traders, transactionalists, uh, and, and don't bring that Maslowian, you know, be love to work every day. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, that's a powerful point of view and, and um, force in our work lives. Now, talking about uh, how to be successful in what we do in business, in our work, and in life generally, uh, it does take work and effort and doing mm. certain things that make a difference. So you shared earlier that uh, as, as we visited that you had made a discovery in your mid-30s 
that led to 10 promotions and helped you achieve a strong financial position and financial security. Can, can you mm-hmm. talk a little about that? What was that? So, so this is like 1996, 1997. I had been coming back into my studentship and I'd gone from just need to know in terms of learning to, to being a voracious reader of books and not just on stuff that mattered to my current job, but anything that was adjacent to it, anything that I thought was interesting to know in the future. I was at a point, Steve, where I would read a book a week. I would burn through these books. I'm not talking novels either. I'm talking about complex books and situations. And what happened was I begin to talk about different things with clients. So when I go to work for Cuban, I have this mentality uh, kind of fed by uh, Leo Biscaglia's love on the one hand and Stephen Covey on the other. I had this mentality that I'm going to go out and I'm going to promote other people's success during a time of great change. Because, you know, the internet was disrupting everything. So I worked a lot with retailers. So I would go out and work with Neiman Marcus or Victoria's Secret or whomever. And I took it upon myself to learn everything I could about their business future and their business challenges and then share that with them. And that's where I had the big aha that if my my business practice was to aggregate my intangibles, my knowledge my network of relationships, my ability to care about people. If I build those up so I can give them away and systematically help other people make the leap without expecting anything in return, that faith would repay me with endless referrals, a powerful brand, and a magnetic value proposition inside my company. Because I make this decision with Mark, I start to adopt this style. I was a salesperson of service out in the community. We accomplished a lot of great things. He sells the company two years later to Yahoo, if you remember back in those days. When I transfer out to the West Coast at Yahoo, I've really refined this system of building relationships by sharing my knowledge and my network and my compassion in every interaction. And it was like the doors swung wide open because now it's 2000. Now it's right after the dot-com crash. This idea about helping people find success during times of great change and expecting nothing in return, boy, it worked crazy good in Silicon Valley. Um, And that's when I begin to train the young yahoos on this philosophy and this set of values. And that's where I begin to write down the steps I was taking to really document, you know, how I read books and how I chose books and why I read books instead of articles and what I talked about when I was networking. And that's where Love is the Killer app came from uh, a few years later. And since then, you know, 15 years, I've been traveling around the world, meeting people, comparing notes and really building upon that philosophy. Oh, that's great. And and uh, as uh, you know, and as we've talked about with our listeners, the 12 principles of highly successful leaders, uh, these are the things that are present across the board for high achievers, those that are able to sustain, really, success over a long period of time, both personally and professionally. And one of those was uh, applying the power of knowledge. In other words, gaining knowledge in the first place And one of the primary ways is being a reader. And so Mm -hmm. this is a great reminder to every one of us listening here today of the power of reading good books on a regular basis because they're just totally stimulating, aren't they? They just fire up your mind. 
And what I like about books is that books require you to take a deep dive into usually a narrow subject. And you don't just learn a couple of data points and one story. You learn a construct, and it's got a thesis, and it's got supporting anecdotes, and it usually has research, and it's really meaty. And you can deeply understand a topic so you can give it away, right? So the twist here, Steve, is read good books, but have a mix. And what I say about this is every third book you read, read for someone else's benefit. I call it prescriptive reading. Right. Think what's, about, what's think about information. Yeah. yeah. Think about information challenges other people have and go study on their behalf because talk about expanding your resume. Right. Gives you a whole different uh, uh, perspective to uh, maybe a different discipline. Absolutely. That's made a big difference for me. And that was another part of my turnaround in the late 1990s that really shifted me away from the idea that, you know, I read books to help myself. No, I read books to help the world. And sometimes it helped me too. And that philosophy will keep you from being too laser focused on what's in front of you and, and not focused enough on what's coming in the future. Okay, great. That's a powerful uh, influence in our success. And, and you told this wonderful experience that you had personally, this uh, story about the bully uh, and your grandmother uh, saying, listen, we need to love him. <laughs> see, th right. see things it from a different perspective. So uh, you must have learned, uh, Tim, somewhere along the line that love can be applied across the board uh, uh, in business uh, and as an entrepreneur. What have you found? What, have you been able to make the jump of using that in your personal life to a professional life? And what's, uh, yeah, what's I, the experience I've made it, been? I, I've made it my professional strategy, you know, for, for the last 20 years or so. I mean, when I say love in a professional sense, Steve, I mean that I have, uh, I have a set of emotions about you. I care. And I am now committed to promote your success by sharing my intangibles with you, my knowledge, my network, my compassion. I want you to think about for those of you listening, I want you to think about the mentor in your life who's made the most difference to you. There's maybe one, there's maybe two, maybe some of you might have three, but there's there's maybe one, right? And I want you to really think about how that person felt about you. And I want you to think about how open that person was to loving someone like you, not as family, but just as a person maybe at work or just a person maybe they did business with. I'm talking about unleashing the capacity to do this every day. I develop strong emotional affect for almost every single person I do business with. And, it, and I don't make them earn it, Steve. It happens quick. Maybe I start out by liking them and I look for things other people don't look for. I want to hear their stories so I can admire their, their values and understand their point of view. I find things that are familiar about them. I experience their passion so I can really understand what makes them a unique person. I think our capacity to care about people at work quickly and then maintain that over time, I think that is oxygen for leadership. Absolutely. Uh, that's so powerful. Um, I, I mentioned to the, the, the research that we've done for 40 years uh, and these principles that are present, I, you're doing them. <laughs> Well, you Tim, know, they're there we're, we're thinking they're, alike, buddy. We we're are thinking, thinking alike. alike. I mean, one of those was living the golden rule. Really exceptional leaders. I mean, you can have leaders that are good in different contexts, but when you put these together, an exceptional leader is also one that really cares about people. 
And this is manifest in how they treat others, how they learn about others, so that they can bring the best out within others. And this is what starts creating excellence. So great going on this. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. And, and uh, by the way, Tim's book, Love is the Killer, Killer App, he, he talks about these three things, knowledge, networking, and, and compassion. Would you mind touching on the compassion part a little bit? And I'd like to go back to the networking because you said one thing that is important, uh, and that is how a mentor uh, maybe ought to perceive others with this love, mm-hmm. learning what their story is. How do you bring out the best? And 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 you'll find mentors that have done this the same way for, for you. So how can you be a good mentor? That's one question. So, and then we'll hit this other one before we're done. Absolutely. So... Um, the best way to be a mentor is to remember that the mentor is usually a, a, a benefactor, a teacher of sorts, and their job is to give the hero a gift that will enable the hero to make it to the next stage of her journey. When you think about Homer's Odyssey with the character mentor, when you think about the archetypal mentorship stories in very modern culture, like say Star Wars with you know Yoda. Mm-hmm or with Karate Kid and Miyagi, that's what it's all about. It's about finding that person that has heroic qualities, that's going somewhere a little too fast. You've got a gift for them. Maybe it's your personal experience. You've been where they've been. You have knowledge that they need and you give it to them. You expect nothing in return, but that they apply that knowledge and learn and improve. All the mentors, they gain enthusiasm from the student learning. And when they need to, They go beyond just sharing information and perhaps make vital connections to create alliances to help that hero deal with upcoming adversity. As a mentor, I just want you to think a little bit like Yoda. And I want you to not really think so much as like a person who's like a fire hose of information, uh, a person who's going to, quote, take somebody under their wing. I think you need to think about your role very transitionally, but most importantly, you need to expect nothing in return other than that the hero seizes the opportunity, right? I think that is what changes the game. And by the way, you know, I know you, you talk a lot about how to be successful over a long period of time. My philosophy that we give without expectation, this is not lip service, Steve. I literally expect them to pay it forward, but I don't expect them to pay it back. And I'm telling you, that is liberating because when I meet leaders – who were generous for years and years and years, and then they, quote, burned out. This is why they got burned out, because just enough people didn't pay them back or give them credit or whatever the reciprocity was supposed to be, and they were disappointed. And I call it ego economics, and it sets in on a lot of people in their career, super generous in their 30s, a little bit jaded in their 40s, super protected in their 50s. I'm 55 years old. I've never been more generous because I'm not disappointed in people. And I think that's what comes with being detached about what you get back. Well, great. Yeah, that's great. I think the even the uh, Jesus Christ, uh, if you, regardless of what you believe, as it was described when he healed the lepers uh, and he had one return and thanked him, Nine did not. <laughs> and if your expectation is is that people are going to thank you, you're probably going to be somewhat disappointed. Absolutely, you will. If that's and, your expectation. And, and, and it's interesting. So, you know, I love that story, and I appreciate that example. Um, 
Uh, I think that for us, the secret to a long-term career is a very flexible perspective. And I think that if we're willing to go against the grain that there's quid pro quo, I think we really open up our opportunities in life to just continue to be great until the day we die. Uh, wonderful. What a refreshing, wonderful perspective. I had a friend, uh, Tim, that I had lunch with last, uh, last week. Uh, he is a facilitator for a very successful uh, training company. He has been really most of his career, 30 years. Mm. He's gone all over the world. And one of the things he talked about was precisely this, is that his observation is one of the keys for companies to get ahead today to be able to be, uh, be a best in class, be the best in their industry is to have an active, healthy coaching program within the company mm -hmm. where people are able to coach each other. And I think it's really these type of qualities you're talking that would help that be successful. Absolutely. And, and for leaders, whether it's a small business or an enterprise, you can create a culture of coaching. So even if there's not a funded program per se, it can be the habit inside that organization. So Tom Ward was brought into Barton Protective in Atlanta to turn that company around several years ago, and he created that culture. He had something called Vision Quest, these values cards everybody carried with them. It was a huge part of the cadence at that, at that company. And the third value was love. Do you care about me as a person? Hmm. He hired based on it. He rewarded based on it. He promoted or did not promote based on it. It made a big deal to how people behaved because culture at work, culture at work is a conversation that's led by leaders about how we do things here. And that's like, that's like software that runs a company, right? So when you as a leader go to work and say, we coach other people because of who we are as a company, then the habit sets in. And, and, and it's very attractive, Steve, to today's millennial to have a reputation for, for a company where we bring each other up as opposed to where we internally compete. So I just want everybody listening to know this is within your power and you don't need a big checkbook, but you do need to have consistent cadence because you need to manage that conversation about how we do things here successfully. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am like uh, speechless that we are out of time. I can't believe it. It goes that quick, man. It, it goes that quick. It has been fast today. Now, any what's one last bit of advice or any tips you'd like to give our listeners before we wrap it up today? It's been fun, so, Tim. Hey, it's been fun, buddy. So um, I'll tell you a place where you can get some stuff about me. But before that, I'll just I'll give you one of my it's kind of my my new little piece of advice I like to give people. And I can't say that I came up with it, but I can tell you I'm championing this idea. If you want to be a happier person in life, in traffic, and in work, the next time somebody irritates you, does something that's seeming, seemingly rude to you, I want you to assume that that person is operating under the best intentions. I want you to assume that you don't know the whole story. Because more often than not, Steve, people are operating under the best intentions. It's just that their needs clash with our needs. And we spend a lot of our time judging those people instead of inquiring about the rest of the story. So like I said, next time somebody cuts you off in traffic, you might want to consider that she's trying to get somebody to the hospital before you honk your horn and shake your fist. And this goes double for you as business owners and leaders. Oh, that's, uh, that's great advice. Uh, I hope I can get this right. This comes from uh, an article I read yesterday. 
and it really left a deep impression on me. It was uh, given by the leader of a, a worldwide uh, organization, a humanitarian service mm. organization. And the fellow talked about 50 years ago, uh, he had a mentor. And the mentor said, every time you meet somebody, if you'll say to yourself, this person is dealing with a serious challenge. He said, you're going to be right 50% of the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. And guess what? Before, when you just reacted and judged that person, you were wrong 50% of the time. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> well, he said, man, I thought my, my teacher, my professor was a pessimist. He said, but I have come to learn what wise uh, advice that was because indeed, uh, as we look around what's going on in the world, it is often true. And I love your comment, uh, half the time we're wrong, so let's give everybody a lot of slack here, right? Well, that, that you know, again, yeah, let, let's put ourselves in another person's shoes. Um, and let's find out more. You can learn and grow so much more. You can expand your tribe so much more. And again, you can just avoid those regrettable mistakes we all make. Yep. Well, these are some great things that we can do to make a difference, uh, to lift others, to build others. Uh, Tim has done a great job in sharing these. What a tremendous background. And Tim, if you'll share how our listeners can uh, learn more about what you're doing, and which is uh, tremendous, we'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. Uh, we've set up a special page for your listeners, Steve. It is timsanders.com front slash BYB. That's timsanders.com front slash BYB. I'll have a, a huge download excerpt of Love is the Killer app for the, you to read. Um, I'll also have a way you can connect with me on LinkedIn and find other resources like videos and other such content on my site. Well, that's terrific. Uh, thank you, Tim Sanders, for being part of the show today. Uh, this has been enlightening. It's been oh, wonderful. absolutely. It's been it's been a pleasure, Steve. I really enjoyed it. Well, you bet. We wish you all the best as you're making a difference in the world as well, Tim. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, uh, never forget you are creating a ripple that can never be counted for good, as we do the right things, good things. Uh, and they do make a difference. They lift our own lives, and they lift others, and they help us be more successful, happier, and have fuller lives. I'm Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, wishing you a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Becoming Your Best podcast. Don't forget, you can find more great episodes of the podcast at becomingyourbest.com forward slash podcast along with great show notes, a full transcript of the episode, and all the links and resources mentioned in the episode. Please share your comments and questions with us. We want to hear from you. The best way you can show your appreciation for our podcast is to leave an honest rating and review on iTunes. Now it's time for you to take action and truly start becoming your best. Remember, good, better, best. Never let it rest until the good is better and the better is best.